you're selling something. If you want, unless you want to like sit with your friends in your garage and play music, which is awesome, totally can do that. You're selling something. So composers, you're selling your service, you know, artists, you're selling your CDs, you're selling a product, touring artists. If you're selling a show, that's an experience. So and the people that buy experiences are not the same people that are buying the services, are not the same people that are buying the products. So you have to get clear on who you're selling to and then market to those people. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Bree Noble. Bree is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Bree's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Bree is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. Hey, you are listening to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast. My name is Bree Noble, and I do interviews on this show that are meant to inspire and inform you, to give you information about how to build your audience, how to make great music, and how to build your business as a female musician. As you know, as I'm very big on when I talk on this show, you are not just musicians, you own a business. And if you want to keep being a musician, you got to figure out the business side. So that's what we're all about here. And I've got a great guest for that today. She is a singer-songwriter, but she's also an industry professional. She has worked in many jingle houses. She's worked with so many industry professionals. And now she runs her own music business course called the MX4 course that we're going to talk a lot more about later. And I want to encourage you to go to mx4course.com and get your free 30-minute coaching call with Cheryl. There are no strings attached. She just wants to talk to you, help you a little bit with your career, and see if you might be a good match to work together in the future. As always, I want to remind you to go to iTunes and give us a review. It is so helpful for our ratings to get more female musicians to tune into this show and learn from all the valuable information and interviews that we provide. And also you might be the winner of one month of Female Musician Academy membership. So that's another good incentive to go to iTunes and give us a review. Now, here is some information on Cheryl B. Engelhart. Cheryl founded CBE Music, a music creation and sonic branding firm, and has produced her own piano pop records, toured around the globe, and has had 30-plus TV placements. Passionate about supporting musicians, Cheryl hosts popular workshops, video trainings, and other valuable resources, like her new MX4 Mastermind on her website, In the Key of Success. Now, here's my interview with Cheryl B. Engelhart. So that's a little bit about Cheryl B. Engelhart. Is there anything, Cheryl, that's not in your short little bio that you want to share about yourself? Maybe something a little more personal. Oh, my gosh. So many, so many things. Let's see. The personal. It's funny because I just got asked to write a personal article on for music for their blog on my whole process of the life circumstances that sort of make you have, like make you have, you know, make certain decisions and certain choices. And sometimes I, I think back and I'm like, oh, I wish I was just able to make that choice before I had to go through all the life crap. (laughs) But I mean, I, I realized very recently, like fourth album into my music career that I didn't want the music to be all about me. I really love the process of collaborating and creating with people and partnering with people. And that's really like the, you know, and being a platform for self-expression and that's, that's become sort of my commitment and like my purpose in everything I do. Whereas before, uh, you know, this fourth record before it was kind of, I I didn't even know it, but I kind of just wanted to do music to be cool. Like I was never the cool kid in high school. And I had like, you know, I started a conservation club and I was in the drama club. And like, I, you know, I realized I had this like very strong desire to be the cool kid and it just like never happened. And I think that that was kind (laughs) of driving my music career for a while until, until like the coolest person in my world, who was also very musical was my dad. He passed away a couple years ago. And that was the life circumstance that had me take a big look at like, wait, why am I doing this? I have no desire to do this anymore. He was the person I was trying to impress and be cool for. And like all these things sort of came up. So 
that's kind of like, you know, it, it, it was a big shift. It was two years ago. And it had me like, look at why I want to do music if I still want to do music. And then like, really what's, what's a better, like more inspiring purpose behind like having a music career. And that's kind of what started me creating more music musician resources and getting some training as a career coach. So I could actually communicate what I got better for other people and just become a a good listener. And and I just, I wish that someone had told me early on, like, Hey, what's your, what's your purpose driving this? And like, if I had actually thought about it, I think that I would have been able to be more effective and connect with fans better and just not be so like into what I was doing. I don't know. It just felt like a little bit self-centered and not really as effective is the word that's coming to mind. So anyway, so that's, that's the personal, that's as personal I can get in in a nutshell version, (laughs) I guess. Is that, does that help? (laughs) Yeah. Oh no. I love that because truthfully, like how long of a sustaining career are you going to have if all you really doing it for is to be cool, right? When you Mm -hmm. don't actually end up being the cool thing that you thought you were going to be, you're going to give up, right? Because you don't have that purpose, that driving purpose behind you. Totally. And I hear a lot of other musicians that, and maybe it's not to be cool, but there's definitely like a validation or they want to be loved or they want to like, there, there's something that's like very inward looking that a lot of musicians do it just to, you know, that it's, it's not, it feels gross when I say it out loud, but it's like, it's very common and it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just like, okay, if that inspires you, cool, keep doing it. But when I found that out, it didn't inspire me. I was kind of like, Ugh, no, that's not, that's not me. And it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It just wasn't the thing that was like lighting me up anymore to do it. So. Right. And like you said, a lot of times you don't realize that that's your motivator until you really look inward. And so people are just doing it and not realizing that, oh my gosh, I'm doing it for Mm -hmm. the shallow reason. Like, do I still want to do it anymore? Right. I love, I love that. That's, that's a good point. So, you know, it's, it's a good reminder to always think about why we're doing what we do and, you know, what's driving us. Mm-hmm. So on that note, how did you get started in music to begin with? There's so many different starts. I feel like I I had like different points where I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this as a career versus like when I was two, my parents took me to some piano recital and, you know, they were talking about, they were sitting behind me whispering, like, look how into it she is. And I turned around and I put my finger on my lips and I said, shh, like I, <laughs> something like I knew as a little two-year-old that like you had to listen very very intently here. And so they, they were like, maybe we should, you know, try have, have her do some piano lessons. So, I mean, that was my, technically my first start. <laughs> um, and then music was always a hobby. I had been playing since I was two and taking lessons. And my dad was a jazz pianist and upright bassist. And so there was always sort of music in the house. Um, I never got the jazz thing. Like I never quite like it was not in my blood. I tried really hard, just not happening. So I was definitely classically trained, worked really hard to like understand theory. Um, I studied music in college, although it was just because I was taking music classes as my creative electives. Um, I was also a biology major and my, my advisor was like, if you take like two more music classes, you could be a double major. And I was like, okay. Um, (laughs) so yeah. And then after college, I got a job doing water quality research for the government, doing scuba, scuba diving and stuff. And I really missed music and something, something told me I should like, I had an opportunity to go work with a friend of my mom's on, um, making some videos in Italy for a website. And so I took a break from the government job and went and did that. And I didn't miss the science and stuff. Whereas when I was doing all the science stuff, I was really missing music. So that was an indicator of like, maybe, maybe I should go this direction. So I just tried writing music for any crappy indie film. Am I allowed to swear on this thing? Cause I, I like, I'm, I find myself <laughs> I don't like, think- back. <laughs> crappy is not swearing, but yeah. No, no, because I clean. crappy was replacing replacing the word that I wanted to say. <laughs> you can stick um, with crappy. Just okay. in case people have their kids in the car, you know. Yeah. So I yeah, so I basically started writing for indie films and I, you know, I was paying my bills as a personal trainer while I was trying to like establish this little music career. And then I got another start when um someone introduced me to to a company called Crew Cuts in New York City and they edit commercials and their post-production house. And through, I met the owner of that company and I was like, this is a really cool company and I'm really interested in the music side of things. So he was like, oh, let me introduce you to some music houses. And long story short, I called one of these houses that I just got obsessed with. It was just a beautiful space, really cool people. And I called them once a month for a year asking if they had a job opening once a month for a year. And the 
the 11th time he's like, actually our front desk person or no, our tech just loud or assistant tech. I got hired as assistant tech. Someone left and I got, there was a spot. So that became like my dream job. I got hired as the assistant tech at this jingle house and you know, the composers would stay, would go home and I would stay late um, working on whatever commercials they were working on, trying to compete with them. Cause you know, we'd always present three to five tracks, depending on what the client was looking for. And so everyone was writing on the job and I started winning. So I got to be more of a composer and I was, you know, managing the library of the unsold tracks. So I was also acting as their music supervisor after a while. And at the same time, they had this beautiful recording space. So I put together a band and I started doing gigs and started writing my own songs and recorded two records there and start, you know, on my weeks off, I would go touring. And on the weekends, I would like take off early on Fridays and like get out of town and do, you know, Boston Friday night and Portland, Maine Saturday show and like come back and do a radio show Sunday afternoon, just like really started to do the touring, the touring thing. So, and that, that was really like, I think that was the official start again. And then that happened, you know, did that for like six years and toured a lot with my band. I ended up leaving the jingle house and then just, just touring and making another record. Um, then I got married and my father passed away two years ago and that, was like another start, so to speak. So multiple starts there. (laughs) Wow. I mean, you've done a lot. So how did you realize that you were a talented songwriter, like enough to like really go after these kind of jobs that you wanted to write music for jingles and stuff? Because you didn't really have, it didn't seem like you had the traditional, you know, music thing, like you got a degree in music and then you wanted to go out and do music. You were doing the whole science thing Mm -hmm. and then you realized you love music. Like you're a really good songwriter. And thank you. Um, I'm interested (laughs) to find out when you realize that. Oh, well, um, it's news to me. (laughs) Well, I, I had always been writing piano music when I was a kid. I would like write these like long sonatas and like overly moody, like, you know, ambient, I probably could make like a bunch of like yoga CDs, you know, And I had, so I'd always been doing that. And I never put, anytime I tried to put words to them, it was always ended up being about like unicorns and rainbows. Like I couldn't quite get away from rainbows and unicorns. So (laughs) I just like, like chalked up to like, I'm not a very good writer. Like fine. I was, I did so much better on my math SATs and my verbal, you know, like that. I was just like, okay, I'm not a writer. But I took a poetry class my sophomore year in college and, and really started to like get work through the rainbows and unicorn issues that I was having. And, um, and I really, I was like, Oh, okay. Like this is how to play with words. And, and so I started thinking about it. I have like some very early, they weren't even songs. It was just kind of like, just, you know, putting some of these words to music. And I had a friend that was in my poetry class with me and he would sort of sit in this piano room with me and he'd do some homework and he'd be like, Hey, you're onto something there when I was playing and like putting some more. So I got a little bit of encouragement early on it actually doesn't feel very early, but I didn't actually write a first song that ended up on one of my records until a a year after I graduated from college. I was on a cross country trip with two girls, girlfriends of mine were driving cross country and back. And I started writing these songs and like singing to them in the tent. And like, uh, I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I can do this song or anything in college. The, the music courses I was taking, I was taking a lot of music technology courses and a lot of the video, um, digital stuff that, I was learning, you know, the examples were, okay, how do you work with digital and digital video and digital music? And so a lot of the examples were scoring video so that you could get sort of both in this technology class. So I, I had always really liked the, you know, partnering with something that was already created or someone else's idea that was a visual idea and how to enhance that with the music. So scoring was always something that was like a byproduct of my tech interests, I guess. So when the the Jingle House job landed, I was like, okay, you know, this is this is interesting. I can write songs. I can play the piano really well. I can sing. I've always was in a cappella groups and did the singing thing. So I I think that like finally being able to like combine all that stuff and like put it into a thirty second commercial for Honey Nut Cheerios seemed like a good fit. <laughs> that's that's cool, and I love the story about you calling them every month. I mean. Mm-hmm you know, that's, that's stick-to-itiveness and that's what we have to do in the music industry. And people, you know, think if they call someone once and they say no, then it's over and they just give up. Well, you know? and yeah, but I also think there's a way to do it. So you're not super, not because I have, yes, you don't want to be annoying. You have to ask permission. Like, I was like, can I contact you right. next month? And he said, he kept saying yes, absolutely. And so like, you know, it, especially if someone doesn't get back to you, this is something that I've learned is like, first of all, have you put in the opportunity for them? Or are you just like, I'm a composer, listen to my music. Like 
I get that all the time. I'm like, why? Just because I'm a composer? Like, I'm barely getting enough work for myself. I'm not going to hire you. And like, why are you emailing me? Like, you have to be very specific in your emails. Like, what's the opportunity for me? Like, what? Oh, you do rap and hip hop? Cool. I don't do a lot of that. So when I get a job, like, you know, you need to know who you're writing to and like what holes, what problems you can solve for them. So if you're not doing that, you're not going to get an answer. If you are doing that and you don't get an answer or you get a no, then you it's it's free reign to be like, hey, totally got that. And like, is it okay if I reach out in a month or two months or in three months? And then if they say, yeah, absolutely, then you have that permission and you're not going to be bothering them. If you're bothering them, then that's on them. You know, like they said, yes. If they're just like, no, we're really, this actually isn't in our field or this isn't, I'm not interested. I never will be. Then, then, you know, and you don't have to worry about like, am I bothering them or whatever? Cause I know that's a, that was a thing for me for so many years, like how to not be a burden and how to not be like super obnoxiously like go getter. And I just, found that just asking if it was okay, it was like, gave me all the permission in the world to like, just say what I needed to say and, you know, follow up once a month and just continue to make sure that that was okay. And it was. I love that. I love that advice. And you're answering my questions before I even ask them, <laughs> because I was going to ask you, you know, for artists that are interested in getting into licensing and, and like what you were doing with jingle writing or score writing, you know, what, what, would you advice would you have to give them? And obviously that is a really good piece of advice there. Do you have any other advice that they could use? Cause I, I hear from a lot of artists all the time that really want to get into licensing and they have no idea how to, you know, start those relationships with supervisors. Yeah. So I think you just asked two different questions in there. The latter part, you were talking more about licensing, but early on you talked about scoring. And I, yeah, I, I did kind of ask two they're questions. They're two really, really different fields and they okay. take two really, really different skill sets. So for the scoring, and, and I know there are artists out there that are, are songwriters and, and singers and artists, but like really, really love the creation process and the scoring. And maybe you like are like me where you really like putting your music to visuals and pairing that and working on that collaboration. And so if that's the case, and then yeah, scoring and composing for films and jingles and web videos. And now there's so many different mediums and video games. Like that's, that's in this realm. What I would say to those people is have a reel. And that doesn't mean that you need to have had jobs in the past. Um, what I tell people in my MX4 courses, like go to Vimeo, find some cool videos that you like, like just send a quick message through Vimeo. Like, Hey, can I use this for my reel? A lot of people go ahead and just like download videos from wherever you can get them and just say on the, on your own video, using this for demonstration purposes only that, that can be okay. Especially if you're not selling it. I don't, you definitely want to be like within like legal realms and give credit and all that jazz. But my point being find some great videos that you will score and score them with the kind of music that you want to write for your job. Like score them with the best, as if this was the best job you ever got. Like you are, you get to write your favorite kind of music. I love like my, the easiest and like the most prolific I am is when I'm asked to write something that's piano based, a little orchestral, light, emotional, like it has a build, it has a story to it. So I get all the Pampers commercials and the tampons and the girly stuff and the feely, <laughs> you know, like send me all that stuff. Like that, those are the commercials I actually really like working on. And the film scores that are moody and, and different and edgy and like bring in live orchestras and uh, like when it's orchestral, that's my, so I'm, I'm a niche. I put myself into a niche and like no, no jingle house, no director is going to want to hear like, yeah, I do everything really well. You may think that you can do jazz and hip hop and death metal and orchestral like really well, but no one will believe you. And like, like good for you for having massive chops and like very prolific, but like, which is your favorite to write in? And that is what your reel should reflect. It shouldn't be like the same thing for every spot. Like you'll hear, I have some rock stuff. If you watch my commercial reel, like, but it starts off with this vocal acapella thing. And then it goes into a little quirky stuff and you sort of get it. Okay. That's the kind of, that's the kind of job. And I think that's a going to get you more jobs and people will know you for something and B, then you're going to attract jobs that you want to be doing anyway. So I would get a video reel, like first thing, whether or not you've had a commercial, a scoring job in the past, um, just score something yourself and, and put it up as your reel. Make sure that your, your website, your branding, it looks really good. Like you have two colors, two fonts. I don't want to see massive colors and the hot, hot pink thing here and yellow there. Like if, if you, if you're doing red on black website, like I, I'm not even, I'm not, I'm just throwing my computer out the window. So just like <laughs> make sure your stuff looks clean. And like the thing that you want a director or jingle house to see is like front and center. And that's probably going to be this video reel. So that's, that's what I always say to the composers and artists, like to get started, don't start reaching out to people and saying like, Hey, I grew up playing the piano. Like I want to write for you. Like they're going to want to see a reel. Like that's it. 
first. And what's the website directly to yours? Because yours is great. I, I love how it starts with that acapella and it's the commercial Thank and everything. You. Um, <laughs> my, I've, I'm sort of like reorganizing my, my world. If you go to CherylBE.com and click add in TV or TV film music, um, that's there. My company is CBE music and CBE music.com has been my website for years and years. I'm reworking that right now. So, you know, take your pick, but you'll see, you'll see sort of everything at CherylBE.com and we'll probably talk about other things that you can also find on that site. So I would go there. Yeah, you guys check that out if you're interested in in scoring. Like she said, she's got a great example there of what you should have on your website. It's nice and big and front and center and it sounds great and it looks great and all that. So go check that out as a good example. So then about the licensing, how I, I do realize that's a different thing. Because yeah. with licensing, you're writing your stuff and then you want to get it into other people's projects. Yeah, licensing. So, I mean, I even do some of my scoring scoring projects. Like I work with directors and if the budget's kind of low, I say, well, I'm retaining the rights to this. I'll write you something original, but then you're licensing that piece of music from me. So there's that level of licensing, which is good for me because then I can take that same piece of music and sell it to someone else or, you know, license it to someone else. So I encourage all musicians that are doing that to try to retain their rights when they're writing something original. But then there's the songwriters out there that have their records and you want to get the music that you already have recorded and it's done on to TV shows and commercials and wherever. And there's a lot of different ways to do that um, because I used to work at an, I worked at that editing house crew cuts before I ended up going to, there's a bunch of little like <laughs> things that happened along the way before I actually landed the, the, in that year I was calling, I was doing other things. So I, I met a bunch of editors that were editing commercials. And so I said, Hey, I have these records that I did, or at the time it was only one. And now I go back to them and I was like, Hey, I have new music. And they sort of put it in their catalog. And, you know, editors are always trying to impress their, their commercial clients. They don't want to pull some Bon Jovi song that's going to look great. And then the client falls in love with it. And then they can't afford that to license that song. So it's in the editor's best interest to pull a song that is available and probably for way less than some famous songs. So if they have the more material they have, the better, you know, the better it is for you to get placed, better it is for them, better it is for their client, you know? So I've gotten a couple placements that way, making, making more friends with editors and reaching out. And a lot of this is just FaceTime, like building relationships with editing companies. What's the problem they're solving? Oh, Hey, do you only have famous music? Cool. Like it's very clear what the problem is at an editing house regarding music. Like they, they can't pull famous music all the time or else they're going to have what the client calls temp love. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you want to avoid that. So that's the problem I solve for them. Um, there are some libraries that are out there. I, I got in with, um, early on APM music joined with reverb nation, um, to do a licensing thing. APM music used to just do original production music, but now they are licensing and, and sort of publishing. They're asking as, administrators for publishing. They're not actually taking a portion of the publishing, but they, they are a library, um, that do a lot of work with TV shows. And, you know, so I, I dumped my last record in with them and I had a guy over there that I kept checking in with. So to make sure that it wasn't just getting like lost in the, the haystack, cause some of those libraries really are needle and haystack kind of situations. So it's good to know someone there if they're making compilations and sending them out to TV networks and whatnot, just make sure you're on those. And so, you know, I got a placement on, so you think you can dance and Jane by design and switched at birth and some of those sorts of things, which is, which is exciting and, and cool. The thing about libraries is that they often have what they call blanket um, blanket deals with networks, meaning that instead of going directly to the band and like negotiating terms, they have set rates that are usually mm -hmm. very low. So instead of making like the six grand I would have made by being on Jane by design, which is around the number, I think I actually like met the music supervisor for that show. And she said, yeah, well, that's what we standard pay. And I'm like, um, I had, I got $200 and that was because it, I got it through the, through the website, you know, through a, through library. So the good thing about, the good thing about that is I got 35 placements on, on national TV shows. So I have it proof that, okay, my music is licensable. It works for TV. It supports the moving image. It supports these stories. It supports this kind of television show. Right. Um, the downside was that working through that particular library, I wasn't getting a lot of money. So now it's like, okay, I have the proof for the pudding. Let's go. It's a great stepping stone essentially. And, and the guys there know that. And I had a great conversation with them and, and they provided me all the data I need to sort of take the statistics to a publishing company. So that, 
Mm. That was another, so that's another way to sort of, if you haven't had any licensed placements before, if you're really aggressive with a library, it can be really fruitful just to get the talking points and, and get some stuff out there and be like, oh yeah, this works. That's great. That's a great actionable thing that, cause it, it's not as hard to get in with the library as it is to get in with like a publisher a network with yeah. all these, you know, supervisors and stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's another way to go is directly like work with supervisors. I think that, um, you know, supervisors are getting tons and tons of music all the time. I think you need to really know the show. Um, if you're like me and you're just like obsessed with TV shows and watch Netflix all the time, and I only watch TV shows on Netflix, then you are good, but you can't blanket send stuff. It's got to be really specific. And yeah, in this course I do, it's, it's called the perfect pitch, like how to really get someone to a read your email and B listen to your music. Like those are the two things and have them not do any work and like they know exactly what they're going to get and exactly what problem you're solving. And it's like a yes. So that that's a skill. And that's, there's definitely like a process to having that email crafted really well. You don't want to send out a, like a, Hey, I have a new record. It'd be really good on your TV show. Check it out with a link. Like you're delete. I would just delete mm -hmm. that. So don't write that email. Don't do it. Now, do they, I'm assuming they've got some kind of barrier walls. They've got somebody reading their emails and, and only sending them what's you know, is important for them to read. I'm sure they all work differently. Even I, an intern or something, you I know. I don't even know. I don't even huh. know. Everyone works. I would if I were them. Yeah. Because I, I get enough know. emails like that yeah. myself. Everyone works differently. I do know that. Um, the guy that produced my most recent record that I haven't released yet, Scott Feldman, he was one of the music supervisors on Sons of Anarchy. And I actually haven't gotten a chance to pick his brain about that process yet, but I'm going to. So, oh, he picks the best music. I've gotten so many great new songs by watching Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, he's. I think he was the assistant. He's one of them. Like, there's there's mm. definitely a team team over there. From what I gathered from what he said, but I do need to pick his brain on that. <laughs> he's got he's got good taste. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I want to talk to you a little bit about crowdfunding because I know you're doing a crowdfunding right now. Yeah. And you did one for your last album, One Up. And so I wanted to find out how that last one went and, you know, how your fans responded and maybe, you know, what you're doing in this one, maybe what you're doing a little differently than last time. Just just a little synopsis. Yeah. Uh, in 2011, I, I did this um, one song a month um, so you could sponsor a song. And then I released the record. Sorry, that was 2010. So the it was a full year of crowdfunding. And then the record, each song then got re remixed and, you know, we put different instruments on and whatnot with that funding and then released the record in 2011. So I did not want to go the Kickstarter route because I wanted to have my own timeline. I did not like the idea of like not getting your money back. Um, mm. So I put a <laughs> PayPal button on my website and I designed it just like Kickstarter and put, you know, different pri prize or you know, experiences or rewards or whatever, you know, you know, you want to call it. And, and I had, a, you know, I raised $30,000 over the year and I was able to put some live orchestra on it, on the record and like do all this cool stuff that I've been wanting to do. And a lot of that money was from surprise, <laughs> surprise super fans that I didn't know I had. Like I got a thousand dollars from this guy and it was from Iraq and I wrote him and I'm like, thank you. And like, what? what? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> he was like, well, I, I don't know how he even like heard of me, but he was like, well, I stole a lot of music when I was in high school. So, and I also, so I feel like I need to like pay back all the music I stole. Um, <laughs> and he was like, and I also have nothing to lose. So mm. he had, he had sponsored a month that, or that was went towards one of the months where I hadn't written the song yet. Some of the songs were written and it was just like the February song is this, the March song is this. So I had started the song about long distance because I'm in a, at the time was in a long distance relationship and now a long distance husband. And so I was writing the song about long distance and I really put a like army wife twist on it for him specifically and like was singing it to this guy. And it was very, it was a, a good turning point. And it, it actually, I remember when I got that money and I got his response, I started having a panic attack. I'm like, oh my God, like this is real. People are like expecting me to like create this. Like I can't fall through the uh, tracks. Like this is for real. And you know, it. Okay. What song, what song was it's that? It's called Memory. And it's. I knew it. Okay. I love that song. <laughs> that's like one of my favorites from the album. And I started thinking immediately, I bet that's the song. Yeah. That's, that's the song. Um, there's a little, there's a line in the third verse. Um, 
you know, can you be all you can be? It's like pulling from the army little tagline. Mm. There's like little hints of it. I mean, you get that it's like about missing someone in general, but then it's like how specifically who is this person and like, what's the situation? And so it nods to him and to that whole thing. And so, and he, you know, he, I was like, what do you want? Like I, the, the thousand dollar letter level was like all these different like posters and like brownies. And he's like, yeah, I don't think you can send a brownie to me, but, um, you know, I'd definitely take a poster. I'll have the coolest bunk in the, in the bunkhouse or something. It was mm. really, it was really sweet. So, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's, that's an awesome crowdfunding story. I love that. Yeah, that was, that was cool. So, and I had a couple other people that gave a little bit more and then just like the couple, however many hundred fans that gave their like 10 to 20 that made a difference. So yeah, the super fans are really important. Those are the people that are like your angels that come out of the cracks that you don't, know you have and you don't know until you ask like I had this whole thing around like being a burden to get I have this burden thing geez but <laughs> I mean if I haven't read it yet and I need to but I know that Amanda Palmer really nailed down the the art of asking that's the name of her book and right it's really just like for me the whole kickstarter pledge music all that just it's a it's ex, an experience exchange like you're doing something cool that other people cannot be a part of because they're lawyers or doctors or have other kinds of lives and you're giving them an experience or you're actually giving them something in exchange like if you're giving them a poster like they bought that like the guy bought a thousand dollar poster like that's it's not like <laughs> it's not like a reward or donation or anything like there is something that the you don't, you may not even know what that is, what they're getting out of it, but there it's an exchange of some sort. It's an interaction and it's a transaction. So, uh, I've talked to a lot of musicians that feel really weird about like begging for money. Like then it's like, it's a, that's a really bad context. Like, okay, if that's your context, definitely don't do it. Cause that's what it's going to land as right. it's going to sound like you're begging for money. So I'm doing a pledge campaign this time. Um, I actually interviewed Benji Rogers for my, course that I do in podcast and he, you know, they have such a really interesting story and it's really musician driven. And I, I got a really good team behind me and they're going to feature. And I'm actually this, the article that I told you I'm writing for them. It's like, they're really interested in the story behind the writing. And I'm just like really aligned with how they're running the company. And, and I was like, you know what? Okay. Like their platform is all the way set up. I'm way busier now than I was four years ago. I don't have time to like recreate a platform essentially. So I, I'm doing the pledge campaign. It's pledgemusic.com slash CBE, which is pretty easy. And I don't. And it's right on the front of your website. It is on too. the front of my website. It's really, and it's, you know, it's interesting because it's harder when it's not just me. I'm wondering, like, it's been really slow to start. Right. And I, I haven't been featured yet. And I've been just doing like a push to my people. And I think that you know, I had sort of disappeared for a little while. So I'm trying to retell that story of like where I went, what happened in my life that had me come out on the other end and do this record. And so I think I'm reintroducing myself to my fans and it's, there's like a little bit of a learning curve there. Like, oh, we thought you were done touring when you got married and your dad died. Like we thought that the, and I did too. I actually was like, oh my, I'm sort of done with the eight years of like being on the road in a van with smelly guys and like I'm over it. And I, I really like, I go to cafes and like coffee houses to see friends play. And I'm just like, Oh, shoot me in the foot. If I ever have to do this again, like I, I am really, really over a certain element of performing and like booking those kinds of uh, over it, just over it. I'm also in my thirties, you guys. So if you're in your twenties, don't get discouraged by me being over it. Just saying. I agree. Me too. I'm over it as well, but I'm 43. So I'm really, I deserve to be over it. Yeah. And I have two kids. <laughs> oh, there you go. so, but anyway, that, that all being said, I was just ready to like, I'm starting to give away a lot of control. It's one of the things that I've been like working on and there's a lot of freedom and like not being such a control freak like me, <laughs> this whole record being co-written duets, like co-produced, like lots of people just don't want the cover photo to be about me. I'm having like a graphic artist friend, like just, I'm like, here's the concept of the record. Here are the themes and the songs. Listen to it. Um, what do you come up with? He came up with this gorgeous idea. So he's working on that and just sort of giving everything away. I'm like, why not the, the whole pledging process as well, or like the fan funding process. So let me give this pledge, see what they can do with it. Um, you know, they really guided me in setting it up and everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm just going to see where it goes. We've got a couple more things in the, in our backs pockets in terms of promoting it. And we've got a couple months left on the campaign. So I'm, I'm not too worried about it, but it's, you know, it's a slow process. I'm definitely not, I didn't even put in to raise all the money that I wanted to raise for this. I'm just like, it's a smaller goal. So just to kind of see, okay, what is it like to use someone else's platform? You know, cause there's another trust level there. Like when I was going directly to my fans and they went to my website, clicked on my PayPal button and saw my email show up on their receipt. 
that's different than like going to what's this pledge music? Who's taking my money? Like what's, it's not Cheryl, but Cheryl's on the page, but it's not. So I think that there's, that's, I think that's a little bit of a barrier. So I just have to work around that. I think. And you do have to give up a little bit. I'm sure you have, they have fees, you know, to pledge music. Yeah. But on the other hand, you didn't have to build that whole thing either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, how does it work in relation to like Kickstarter? Do you have to reach your goal or? I didn't think you had to, but then I'm seeing some like some notes in the back end. Like I actually am not clear on that. I think, I don't think so. I think that's one of the reasons why they started it, but I think you have to hit a certain point. I'm not really sure. I'll, I do know that you can extend it and keep extending oh, okay. and keep extending it. Um, I mean, I know people that have had pledged things for like hundreds of days and I mean, mine was set up with the 60 day thing, but I'm, I'm definitely going to extend it. My record's not even going to be released by the end of it. So it's like, I can keep, I can keep doing that. So I need, I actually need to check in with that. Cause I'm like, wait a second. I need to. <laughs> and have you written the songs yet or are you still in process? The record just got finished mastering. It's done. Oh, so you really have. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So we're done. I'm starting October 1st. I'm starting like a big PR push. I am actively talking to publishing companies about getting on board with, with like a hardcore licensing pitch. We're not going to release the record until January 15th okay. of 2016. The, all the pledgers will get the record end of October. So it is now that's a cool incentive. I like that. Yeah. So everyone that wants the record can pre-order it and, you know, for the standard $10 to get a record and they'll get it by the end of October. Um, but you know, releasing it nationally and internationally and like digitally and like putting it everywhere, then you only get one release date. So to use the tracks, especially for licensing, the goal of this record is licensing, right? I wrote a bunch of these songs with other people that are very successful in licensing, like Ari Herstand and Toby Lightman and Brian DeVoe. Ooh, Toby Lightman. Love her. Yeah. So we have like, there's some great, great artists on here and they all are, we're in very similar places. Some of them are touring more than others, but like we are all like really focused on licensing. And so we want to be able to use that. This is unreleased. This, this can be an exclusive, like first hear, first listen essentially on your TV show. Like that, there's some leverage there that we're trying Mm. to leverage. (laughs) (laughs) So words. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thanks for all that information on your Kickstarter. I think that's, or your crowdfunding. It's really, really helpful to a lot of people that listen to the show that want to do a crowdfunding campaign. So I want to talk about your, um, mentoring mastermind program, but first I wanted to ask you, did you have a mentor that, that really helped you along the way? I had a couple of people that were really helpful in, in very specific areas. Um, like what my boss at the jingle house was really open-minded, um, like big thinker. And he, we still have lunch and talk a lot. And he, he just sort of like opened my mind to the fact that there's a lot of ways to do a lot of different things and just keeping like keeping that open mind has been really important. And, and also like, he's an idea guy. And I think I was always like, if I can't execute this idea and know exactly how I'm going to do it, then I sort of toss it out the window versus just like dancing in this idea a little bit and sort of, you know, simmering with it for a while. And I've, I, I think that that was a really big thing, you know, developing my career. There's a, an Emmy winning composer that I, who's also a career coach, Michael Whalen. He helped me a lot, especially more recently, more around after my father passed away, he really helped me in like choosing music and like looking at like why I was doing it. And, um, I think that that was a big, a big turning point for me and getting really clear on like what I'm trying to say and how to be authentic around that. And, and then from the beginning, Rob Mathis, who is a genius composer and arranger, um, I, he was just from my hometown, so I just knew him from various musical things there. But he he arranged and orchestrated all of Sting's orchestral record, and he was wow. the musical director for Sting's The Last Ship, the, his Broadway show that just closed. Mm. Um, and you know, he arranges the Kennedy center award on, you know, all that stuff. So he does a lot of big, big, bigger stuff, but behind the scenes. And I feel like my career is sort of going that way as well. Like I do love that kind of arranging and like bigger, bigger music. And he, you know, he puts on a Christmas concert every year of his, just his original music. Like he's, he's religious and has this huge, huge body of work of Christmas music. And he has this amazing band, Willie on bass and Sean Pelton, who's a Saturday Night Live drummer and, and six horns and like a 30 person choir. And 
I mean, I've been in that choir for eight years. So every, every year around Christmas, mm-hmm. I see him and we have the rehearsals and, and, you know, he always gives me this like one minute passing conversations that like last the rest of the year for me. And mm-hmm. like the, the concert after my father passed away, you know, I told him and, you know, he had met my dad at these shows and whatnot. And he was like, so you kind of lost your audience, huh? And I was just like, that's exactly it. He's like, yeah. And he told me that his, for him, that would be, I think he said his grandmother. He's like, I'm writing for like, yes, you have your fans and your, your mother and you, you know, your cheerleaders that you have, but like, there's that one person that's like, that's your audience. And, and to just be able to like acknowledge that and get that that was normal. And like, it was just, it stuck with me. And, and, and he was like, and your dad's going to want you to keep writing just so you know. And I was like, like, oh, okay. So there, I think that my mentors have been very, um, you know, sort of bigger picture kind of mentors. I mean, I, I loved my college professor, David Borden, who was very technical and like was friends with Bob Moog and, you know, just really had me appreciate like the beginning of music technology in a way that like Mm. has me really super dorky when I talk about it. Um, also I have like (laughs) this whole like female and technology thing that is, going on from in my head. I don't do much with it because I haven't found many others, <laughs> but you know, there, I, I got that from him. And so there's, there've been like mentors like that, but I, I really, when I got into the music business, I was, I got, I have like a whole shelf of like how to make it in the music industry and like what the record labels don't tell you and blah, blah. Like I was getting books. I, I would pay all the hundreds of dollars to go to all the music conferences and just like try to talk to the panelists and like never be able to talk to the panelists because they were always running into the green room and I just finally like was just never found like one answer of like, I feel like I'm missing something. I feel like there's something, you know, and maybe it was this purpose. I don't know what, what it was that was missing, but at some point, like I got enough experience touring and licensing and recording and doing all of these things and advertising that I started getting asked to speak on some of these panels and the CEO of Reverb Nation at the time, like five years ago, was like, you should write a book or a course on what everything you just said, because it was actually really valuable. And I was like, I'm not a writer. We go back to like, I don't write, I write about rainbows and unicorns. Come on. (laughs) And I turned it into an e-course and that e-course did really well. And I turned it into like a live workshop. And then I started really listening. I started getting a lot of the same questions from the e-course and I started answering the same stuff. And I started taking polls at the the conferences I was giving workshops and just asking songwriters and musicians, like, what are you struggling with most? And the answer is consistent. Like I've had hundreds of responses to this poll and it's like 50%, 20, there's three answers that always come out. And one of them is 50%. Uh, I need more connections. 25% is I need more money. And 25% is some combination of, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to market myself. I don't know what my message is. Some sort of, I don't know. So the connections thing just really blew me away. I'm like, oh, everyone here or 50% of everyone that I talk to in the music industry thinks that they need someone else to find them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's why I started this MX4 course, which is the marketing, branding, money-making, mentorship mastermind. Because once a week we have an interview with a music business expert, like Emmy-winning composers or heads of record labels or like Tina Schaefer, Judy Stakey, like Benji Rogers of Pledge Music. He was one of them. And just people just being very generous with their time. And the participants in this course, there's only between five and 10 in any given course. They get to ask the questions that you would want to ask these panelists. Essentially, they're the people that are on the panels, right? So right. here's your connection. And in the course, you actually get that you don't need them. I mean, it's not that you're not supposed to go network and make relationships and, you know, the way I'm talking to editors to place my music and stuff. It's not about that. It's it's less, it's more about taking the desperation out of, and that it's the only, you take the blinders off. Like, how, Yeah, I think yeah. you do need them, but not in the way that they think. Right. And you know, exactly. And you can generate your own income and you can generate your own successes and it doesn't take a, definitely doesn't take a label to do that. So did I ask? Yeah. It's, it's funny because I did a similar survey one before I started the female musician Academy and same thing. Like I got almost the exact same results you did. Mm. And I had like 135 responses or something. And yeah, it's, it, they all think that they need the connections. They need the decision makers. Um, they need someone to quote, see them, yeah. you know, yeah, or hear them. Right. Um, uh, but you don't, that's, and so what do you, what do you, it's a six week course and I love that it's like so small 
and people can, you know, really ask their questions and stuff. What do you do with people in the initial like 30 minute call that you do with them to kind of see if it's right for them? Yeah. Well, so yeah, I offer a 30 minute like free coaching call with me and the whole, the, my intention is that they get value out of the call, whether or not they want to sign up for the course. So it's not just a sales call. What the first part of the course is sort of the call is just, I want to hear where they are now. And then I ask them like, where do they want to be? Like if you, if I had a magic wand and I bopped you on the head with it, like poof, you have the perfect music career. Like what does that actually look like without worrying about money or how to get there? Just like, what is your ideal? And usually they're really, really different. So what I'm listening for is, you know, is there a gap to be closed? A lot of, some people I have spoken to some people and they're like exactly where they want to be. And I'm like, okay, cool. So maybe you want a PR company or like, let me refer you to this person that does this sort of coaching or, um, so I'm looking for, is there a gap that I can help close and contribute to? Is there something I can contribute to? And then the other thing I'm listening to for is, are they, are they really committed to their music career? There I do talk to a lot of people that have full-time jobs and are looking to transition out, but some there, every once in a blue moon, I get the person that's just like the hobbyist, like, Oh, I think this might be fun. Um, and this course is really, it's not intense in the sense that it takes up a lot of time because a lot of the people in it are, you know, do have full-time jobs. The other people that are not are just like scrambling and trying to make ends meet. And I totally get that. So it's, it's, it meets only once a week for one hour on a video call plus the one hour um, interview which is recorded for my podcast so they can listen to it later if they can't make that interview. So it's two hours a week. Plus I give homework and stuff that I'm not checking up on it. It's, it's for them to do, you know, you get what you put into it essentially. So I'm like, I'm listening for like how serious are they are. If it's just like a, a hobby kind of thing, I can really hear that the, the work it takes to really get clear on your purpose. Like we dig in, it gets personal. It's like, you know, it answers the question, like, who am I, who am I not just in the music career, but like in the world. And then from there, if, once you're clear on that, like your branding and messaging is going to get super clear. You're going to get clear on who, who you're selling to because all musicians are selling something, products, service, or an experience. Like if you're touring, I know we don't want to think of ourselves that yeah. way, but we are, I know. you it's know, absolutely so hard to think of like, I'm selling something. You're selling something. If you want, unless you want to like sit with your friends in your garage and play music, which is awesome, totally can do that. You're selling something. So composers, you're selling your service. You know, artists, you're selling your CDs, you're selling a product. Touring artists, if you're selling a show, that's an experience. So, and the people that buy experiences are not the same people that are buying the services, are not the same people that are buying the products. So you have to get clear on who you're selling to and then market to those people. Are they hanging out? Where are they hanging out on social media? So we do that. Um, we get we, we rehaul your, if we need to, your social media and website, get everything consistent. So the photos look great. The colors, fonts across the board, nothing is pixelated or grainy. There's no terrible pictures of you. If you don't have photos that look great, then we make graphics. Um, I use a bunch of different resources like Canva and word swag, um, and some really cool apps that make you look like a graphic designer and you don't have to spend any money. So we do all of that in the, the next couple of weeks after we get this purpose and the message clear. And then we have a couple of weeks where we're taking on money, like looking at all the different ways to make money, um, what you need to have set up in terms of your performing rights organization, sound exchange, where you need to be registered so that you can make money once you get the licensing deals, how to do the outreach, how to really pitch. We look at the streams of income that you currently have, if you have any, and then we look at how to make more and we just take the blinders off. And there's some ideas that you have that you never thought you would have. Um, I've had people that their goal for the course was to make $1,500 in music by the end of the course. And they did it within the first five weeks. It's just kind of like go time. It's all results driven. The whole course is about results and like big goals. And the, the someday it would be so nice if we take that and put that into six weeks. And then by the end of the course, we have all these structures that we put in place, like calendars and accountability teams and things that will really help you so that you don't need to take another course or buy another book like this is in place. And you have access to this, you know, you have a private back end website. So you have all the materials and me as a resource and all these people that you spoke to throughout the course. and. Um, it's a good little community that also you throughout the whole thing, each week you get an accountability partner with someone else in the course. And so you're both giving each other feedback. You're also cross promoting each other once a week. So you have someone else like totally new audience promoting your stuff on Twitter and Facebook. So each week you get a new partner where you're going to post something for them. They post something for you and, and you sort of grow that way as well. So that's really, that's really cool. And I, I love that collaboration that you have in the social proof and stuff that you're implementing in there. Yeah, it's really fun. It's it's I'm in my fifth course right now. It happens every two months. And it's 
the first thing where I really get to combine everything that I know plus everything I don't know. Like, I don't know about this. I'm going to call Benji Rogers and ask him to talk about it. <laughs> I don't know about this. So I'm learning, I'm sharing. It's, I, my friends are telling me like, since you started the MX4 course, you've been more productive in your own music career than I've ever seen. It's holding me accountable. Um, it's really, it's, it's really lighting me up and I think it's really valuable. It's really, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I, hope you guys, our listeners have heard how knowledgeable Cheryl is and how much great experience she's had and what she wants to share with you guys. So if you want to go get your 30 minute free coaching call about your career, I want you to encourage, to encourage you to go do that. And where should they go? MX4course.com. MX4course.com. Yeah. And how else can they get in touch with you online, on social media and such? Um, my Twitter handle is CBE. It's like the easiest Twitter handle in the world. Hmm. A lot of people think I'm an airport. Um, <laughs> it does sound like an airport. Yeah. So that there's that. Um, on Facebook, I'm Facebook slash uh, CBE artist. And Instagram is CBE music. They weren't all... They weren't all available at the time. I just, you know, you I wonder who's taking them, huh? There's yeah. a few of mine that I had to be Brie Noble music. And I'm like, who's the Brie Noble that yeah. took mine? Generally, generally everything CBE music works. Like Google and there is a Facebook page. My old, my old fan page was CBE music. You can still go to that. My website, my old website is CBE music. All that stuff still works. So you can find me anywhere CBE music other than Twitter. Twitter is CBE. Um, that, that's the simple simplification, but on all my websites, including mx4course.com and CherylBE.com, I have links all over the place to email me personally. And I'm super down with that. So awesome. So you guys go check that out and go to mx4course.com and get your 30 minutes with Cheryl. I know it will be valuable for you. And Cheryl, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us today and sharing your like wealth of <laughs> knowledge over the years. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is this has been great. And I'm, I'm super psyched about what you're doing too. You've got so much good stuff going on. So it's really great. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com. With editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson. <laughs>